1: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill filling in for Lucy Alpavanchel. The life of a farmer is often romanticized. Open fields, fresh air, and growing food to fuel not only your body, but your world. But ask any farmer about their day-to-day, and the reality becomes obvious. Farming is hard work. It's a job that's often isolating, subject to the weather, and filled with financial uncertainty. And with so many daily challenges, a farmer's mental health can sometimes become an afterthought. Joining us now by Zoom is Joan Nichols. She's executive director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau Association. Joan, welcome to Where We Live.
0: Welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Joan, I wonder if you can just sort of start at at a high level. Outline for us some of the challenges that farmers face that can bring on mental health struggles.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, as you had mentioned earlier um, in your introduction, while farming can be romanticized, um, it, is, it is very, very hard work. And some of the challenges amongst many are the, the weather and the weather, as we all know, has become more extreme. We go from droughts to, to heavy rain, um, financial instability. We also have an aging Uh, a population of farmers and with with age comes sometimes some health issues, it could be dangerous work. Um, And and for our dairy farmers in particular, they're also, um, they have to deal with the federal milk pricing system so they don't really have full control over their income. And then our farmers are also dealing with, uh, you know, fluctuations in market conditions. And also um, we're at a point in, in the age of farmers where many farms also have to think about transitioning the farm to the next generation. And there's also, an, uh, overlying all of this is what we call the, the heritage of the farm or the legacy of the farm, where farms offer, are in, in multiple generations, sometimes well over a hundred years old. And that legacy, while it, while it can be um, very rewarding can also be very, um, very daunting and very challenging. um, If the farm wants to continue what that's going to look like, or if the farm gets to the point where they can't continue farming anymore, and um, there's a sense of of ownership of that legacy, which can also bring on um, challenges and stress.
1: And so, uh, John, you know, there's obviously a, there's a lot to unpack there um, when you're uh, interacting with farmers. These are individuals who are often, uh, you know, very self-reliant. They're, they're problem solvers. They're very focused on kind of triaging the issues of the now. You know, if something breaks at the farm or if uh, there's a weather event, how do you start mental health conversations with farmers? Um, is it on a case by case basis? Where do those conversations begin?
0: It, it, it comes from a couple of different places, more often than not. Um, in an ideal situation, it, it's uh, just a, a one-on-one conversation that you happen to have with a with a, a farmer, and and um, you sort of get the sense that maybe they're struggling. Sometimes it comes from uh, family members who are concerned about um, somebody in their family that's that's farming, and they're concerned about um, you know some conversations they've had that are a little bit unsettling. And then sometimes our farmers, while it's isolating, often interact with, with um, what we call ag service providers during the course of just week to week farming, whether it's the driver that's delivering the feed or the veterinarian that's taking care of their livestock. And sometimes um, it comes from one of those individuals, a veterinarian or, a, a, a you know, the the trucker that's picking up the, the milk or or somebody that's delivering the feed or supplies to the farm has a conversation with a farmer and and gets the sense that maybe there is some challenges there. So um, farmers are very proud and that's part of the challenge is they often don't come directly out and say, I'm struggling, but sometimes uh, people around them get a sense that there's there's something that um, they could use some help with.
1: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned their farmers are, are very uh, proud of, of their heritage, but uh, you know, I, I know you've said in the past, this is the heritage that often can come with a, a bit of a burden attached to it, both legacy burden and sort of the, um, I guess, the, a farmer feeling like they need to preserve that. Um, and then also just the, the burden of day-to-day life and things breaking at the farm. And then piled on top of that, I mean, this is a, a proud group. They're, they're usually men. They might not be great at sharing their feelings um, like myself. Um, and it can be hard to start those conversations.
0: Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's why um, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that um, NPR and others have taken on this issue because it's a national issue. Um, it, it's, we've seen articles nationally on, on farmers that are struggling across the country, as well as here in, in Connecticut. And I think the most important thing, the most important message is it's okay to ask for help um that's another um you know that's another um issue is that being so proud they're they're sort of used to doing everything themselves and you know i can fix it i can handle this i can make it work but then sometimes mental health issues are something that is something that people are not comfortable asking for help about you know they'll go you know if 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 they have a challenge with their physical health they may go see a doctor and get that addressed. But when it comes to mental health, you know, there's a stigmatism around that and asking for help is actually a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. And that's an important message to get across.
1: Joan Nichols is the executive director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau Association. Uh, Joan, I I wonder if you can talk a bit about how this issue um, either first came to your attention personally or how it came to the attention of the Connecticut Farm Bureau Association?
0: Sure well a Connecticut Farm Bureau Association um, we are um, associated with American Farm Bureau Federation down in Washington DC which represents um, the umbrella organization for the 51 farm bureaus across the country and American Farm Bureau Federation first brought this to um, our attention um, on what was going on what they were seeing nationally across the country and then even here in Connecticut um, when uh, milk prices, plummeted a few years ago. um, There was um, a a milk cooperative that brought it to our attention. And then the um, Connecticut Department of Agriculture a few years ago also recognized that this was a problem in Connecticut as well as uh, University of Connecticut. And so a group of us got together Um, Department of Agriculture Farm Credit East, University of Connecticut Extension, and the Farm Bureau, and we sort of sat around the table and said, "What could we do um, to help Connecticut farmers?" And one of the things that we did is both myself and a a colleague of mine with the Connecticut Department of Agriculture uh, went through what's called QPR training, which is um, suicide prevention training, and and, um, and it's sort of a train the trainer program. So what we're trying to build here in Connecticut is, is a sort of a network of service providers that can kind of have their ear to the agricultural community. So um, we can share resources and help farmers when we find that the need arises.
1: When we're talking about access to mental health care among farmers, Joan, I mean, I'm I'm imagining that sort of varies uh, depending on the geography of where the farmer is located. Uh, If they're on a rural farm, maybe it's more difficult for them to access services. But I wonder if you can maybe talk a bit about um, access to mental health care among farmers. And then, you know, if farmers do find that access um, sort of why it's important for the provider to kind of understand where the farmer is coming from and understand what their lifestyle is like
0: yeah that that's that's been sort of an overarching um issue as well it's one it's one thing to recognize that there's a there's a, a there's a problem and it needs to be addressed it's another it's another issue to um get immediate um assistance for farmers that are struggling with mental health and that urgency is critically important um I I have to give um, a real call out to our colleagues at Farm Credit East. Um, They have contract. They are a a private lending institution. They've been uh, the farm credit system has been around for over 100 years to assist on the financial side of farming. And a few years ago, they contracted um, with a mental health provider to uh, sort of a a 24 seven uh 800 number that a farmer could call at any time and get some assistance and as a result of these roundtable discussions we found out that farm credit was offering this and i have um sent that reference to a, a couple of farmers and the response i've gotten is that it was really good to be able to call somebody 24 7 and most importantly they got somebody on the on the line that not only was trained in mental health uh, care, but also was uh, understood agriculture. And so once they had that interaction initially over the phone and they realized they could pick up the phone and to speak to somebody, it sort of relieved a little bit of of the stress of how do I even start the conversation? And then ultimately what they need to do is also be in touch with a provider here in Connecticut and um you know that's a little bit of a challenge part of it is because of the insurance part of it some farmers are many of them are self-insured with high deductible systems uh or or programs so you know that's part of it is what we've heard is getting access locally that's affordable can be uh can be a challenge but once they get somebody on the line then, oftentimes, that's the first step to getting them to somebody locally.
1: Have you found that uh, the pandemic has amplified these challenges in any way or affected them in any way?
0: Um, I, I don't know. I think farmers go 24 twenty four seven, regardless. You know, we all eat, so we all need food, and so farmers keep going. I think what I think the I think some of the challenges with COVID is there we've had labor shortages in agriculture for years and the pandemic has made that more acute so we um, where we're, our farmers are experiencing acute labor shortages um and and more recently the past year or two rising input costs uh fertilizers fuel everything has skyrocketed Um, You know, some of that's attributed to a fallout from the pandemic. Some of it are more recent global issues that's affected that. But that all affects the farmer's bottom line and profitability. And that certainly can also um, address, um, you know, mental health issues. So I think during the pandemic, most of it was pivoting to uh, address market conditions. How did they get their product out into the marketplace? And also dealing with the uh, supply shortages, that was a real challenge for our for our farmers. But again, they're resilient and and they make it work. But it, it certainly doesn't make the mental health problem um, any easier.
1: For farmers out there, Joan, who you know might be feeling uh, that they're currently struggling with mental health challenges, or they have struggled in the past with mental health challenges, what would you want your message uh, to them to be?
0: I think the message is, first of all, please ask for help. Um, ask a family member for help. Go to your local physician and just say, listen, I'm really struggling with something here and I need help. Uh, by all means, uh, any farmer in the state can call me at Connecticut Farm Bureau. Uh, our general number is 860 768 And I'm happy to speak to any farmer in the state that's struggling and also, um, I would call the Farm Credit system, Farm Credit East, and find out about their um, consulting services, So, uh, or also call either the Connecticut Department of Agriculture. Also, they're, they're in tune to resources that can help farmers.
1: That was Joan Nichols, Executive Director of the Connecticut Farm Bureau Association. Joan, thanks so much for coming on today. Thank
0: you so much. Take care.
1: From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Patrick Scahill, filling in for Lucy Nalpothanchil. You can reach the Farm Aid hotline by calling 1-800-FARM-AID or 1-800-327-6243. If you or someone you know is having thoughts of suicide, call or text the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Coming up, we'll learn more about the challenges facing new farmers and how those challenges can be magnified when the farmer is a person of color. You can join the conversation or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygen it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO GO team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the GO team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevatinghealth. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill filling in for Lucy potential. Farming is a difficult career, but for BIPOC farmers, that's Black, Indigenous, and people of color, the challenges can be particularly acute. Everything from getting access to land to selling your food at a farmer's market can resurface centuries of racism that are still playing out on fields across America today. But BIPOC farmers are banding together for support. Joining us now is Dr. Gabriela Pereira. She is co-director of the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust and co-owner of Yara Farm. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Gabby, thanks so much for being with us here today. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Uh, thank you for having me.
1: So tell us a bit about how you initially got introduced to farming. What made you want to pursue this?
2: Um... Back when I was doing my bachelor in biology, I had the opportunity to start to work with small farmers, cocoa farmers. And there I realized the beautiful connection between your ancestors, the food that you eat every day, and the relationship that uh, a person can have with the land.
1: What was it about uh, growing cocoa that really highlighted that relationship for you?
2: Um, cocoa, it's a, I'm from Venezuela, um, cocoa is a uh, crop that has a lot of history, both in colonization and before pre-Columbus days, so cocoa was, um, the plant was given to us thanks to many, um, generations of amazing indigenous farmers that gave us what the plan that we have today. And in Venezuela, back in the 19th century, we, we were a very important um, country regarding cocoa plantation. But nowadays, um, it is more cultural, and small farmers, especially women, are the ones that are in charge of the production, the cultivation, the um, keeping of the seeds and the varieties that gives Venezuela one of the, mm, I will say, best cacao in the world, but of course I am biased. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, we have very particular varieties uh, called porcelain that are very important in the chocolate uh, industry all over the world.
1: So when you make the decision that you want to start a farm here in the United States, um, where do you even begin? I mean, to me, that seems like, like such an overwhelming thing. Um, where, where do you kind of uh, start that journey?
2: Totally. Once I understood and realized that the United States is my home now, and it will be my home for many years to come, I I had a conversation with my wife and I explained how much for me as an immigrant, as a daughter of immigrants, granddaughter of immigrants, is to be related to the land in a meaningful way. Farming was the... um, farming is the way of being connected with the land. And for her, a black woman, having connection to the land in this country is important as well. So we begin with the idea of starting a small farm, something between five to 10 acres that will allow us both to plant the seeds from cultural relevant, uh, crops that speaks to each one of our cultures. And from that idea four years ago, we are today in our first year of production at Yara Farm growing those seeds.
1: Talk about what it was like to find farmland. Was it was it hard?
2: Very hard. Um, we don't have this possible income. We don't have uh, family uh, money we don't come from money so our first approach was to rent to lease land because we cannot afford to buy uh, um, land with the price of development right now we cannot compete with those prices um, yes it took us probably t- two and a half years uh, and one year of fully going to lands looking um if that is a good uh, land for us. Um, We, every time we were outbid by somebody that wanted to purchase the land in cash, 40% more of the value. Um, Yeah, but we finally got to a place where the land owner wanted to preserve the land. and when I say wanted to preserve the land, is for her it was important that the land was in production, was um, sustainable, was stored, And she gave us the opportunity to my wife and I to to look into what Yara Farm might look uh, there.
1: We're speaking with uh, Dr. Gabriela Pereira. She's co-director of the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust and co-owner of Yara Farm. Um, I, I wonder, you know, when we think about access to land, Gabby, this is, um, you know, as you were saying, it can be very difficult just to find land. Uh, but when you do find it, you know, a lot of farmers I've spoken with here in Connecticut have said there's a whole host of other issues that arrive every, arise, everything from, um, you know, tilling the soil to even finding water access on the land itself. <laughs> um, what do you hear from farmers when they, when they talk about uh, land access and, and working the land? What are challenges that pop up there for them?
2: definitely um thank you patrick for that question i i work for the northeast farmers of color land trust there we are a network of 530 farmers and land stewards of color throughout the northeast and we very often talk about this in our network Um, once we get to the land what comes next and it is as challenging as find the land because you might have a business plan you might have crop plan but then you hit the reality of um where do i get the the tools where do i get the equipment Uh, how how much can i do that was in my plans versus the reality of work in the land for the first year. So there is a lot, a lot, a lot to do regarding um, irrigation, preparation of the soil um, in a meaningful way that speaks to sustainability and stewardship values that we have. Um, I Yes, so my... (laughs) And without having this possible income, without having... The possibility to go to credit uh, unions or f- finance institutions that traditionally um, lend money to farmers it is um, very problematic and we cannot go to those institutions first because for beginning farmers you need to have at least three years of of production records uh, under your belt before even being acceptable. Then discrimination. Um, Every time that I go to USDA office, um, I always get asked, but are you the farmer or? Yeah, so it's it is a very unpleasant situation um, trying to find the capital to pursue this dream of us. And this is not only my reality, but the reality of the majority of farmers of color in the North So every time that you see a GoFundMe campaign that you can support a farmer of color, please do.
1: Tell me a little bit more about uh, the reality that you, you experienced. Gabby, you mentioned um, the the long journey that you took to uh, get the land. Um, and then, you know, you said uh, other farmers will often say, well, you got the land. What comes next? Um, so what what was next for you when you did get access to that land? Were there challenges that popped up on, on your particular plot of soil that um, you had to kind of work your way through? I'm sure there were.
2: <laughs> Definitely. So we ha- we are farming and uh, 20 acres of black dirt. Black dirt are muck soils. Um, they are the they are they come from wetlands. Actually, Yara means water in Caquetillo, uh indigenous language. It's how you call a farm that is in a wetland. Water. <laughs> <laughs> that is our respect to our yep. culture. Um, so when I try to rent equipment, uh, I'm. I'm very versed in equipment, farm equipment and what to do and everything. I often get comments like, um, but are you sure that you can uh, manage that equipment? Or do you want to call your husband uh, to manage this equipment? Or even price, the price that I get when I call, I, I did this once, I, I asked a friend, uh, um, a male friend to ask uh, and ask prices for for a tractor, for renting a tractor, and he got $500 cheaper than me, hmm. <laughs> just because I a woman. Um, yeah, so it's it, when the whole system is designed to support um, white men under 50, it's very difficult for anyone that they're... To step up in that space, to have the services, to have the respect, and to have the welcome um, as a
1: farmer—it's something I do not have to tell you, Gabby. Is this idea again? You know that farmers—it is—it is is such a difficult job. It is a job where there are so many day-to-day challenges. um, But then, you know, obviously layered on top of that are the challenges that that you're outlining when. Uh, you are a farmer that doesn't look like a white male in a plaid shirt on a green tractor, right? It's Those challenges are, ma- are magnified even even more. Um, uh, and I wonder just, you know, if if that's ever made you feel like an, an outsider in the farming community um, or just how that sort of impacted, you, you know, you personally.
2: The overall uh, farming community, yes, we are an outlier. When, when we see the numbers of Connecticut, for example, Connecticut has... 5,521 farmers. 5,498 identified as a white. Um, They are, the average age is 57.2 years old. Definitely we are outliners from that, um, uh, from that demographic. However, we are a growing community that um, we have each other back, and that is the purpose of the farm. Is farmers of color land trust. We say that we create programs for us by us. We all are land stewards in a way or another, and within there, we find our community, our support. Um, we uh, we seek knowledge transfers. A lot of the um, we are probably one or two generations away from the land when many of our ancestors needed to go to urban places for whatever reason then the knowledge of surviving on the land the knowledge of being in relationship with the land was lost or those that has kept that tradition that knowledge um usually are not um Highlighted enough, or the knowledge are taken away um, and publicized with an with different number. Uh, sorry, names. So, yes, having a community of farmers of color um, next to you, and maybe it might not be physically, but nowadays that we have social networks, uh, it's uh, another ways of connect with each other. It is a difference uh, for me, for my wife and for my community. Knowing that we are not alone, it makes a big, big difference. And there is uh, communities of queer farmers as well around the Northeast.
1: And uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, the importance of that community uh, coming up uh, here in uh, a few minutes, Gabby. I did want to very quickly play a a clip here. Um, All Summer Long, Connecticut Public Radio has been speaking with uh, BIPOC farmers across the state uh, a few months back, we spoke with two young farmers, Sarah Rose Kareem and Azim Zakir Kareem. Sarah is white, Azim is black and Native American. And uh, this married couple says farmers at farmer's markets would sometimes treat them differently depending on who's behind the stand.
3: There was one farmer's market I had to work for, you know, this on the very last day, I show up and suddenly no one's coming near the booth. And she was like, "Why is no one coming? This is so strange. Why is no one here?" I'm like, Cause "You got a black dude here. <laughs> this isn't this isn't you know a place where you just find black people walking around."
0: People will just kind of slide right past you and go to the white farmer. My first instinct is, "Is it really that?" And then and then I look and I'm, yeah, I have to agree. I have to agree.
3: If a white man selling ice and a black man selling ice, we automatically assume the white man got superior ice. The white man's ice is colder. So if we're in that market and it's a white area, right? You have to qualify yourself as being worthy to entertain them. And then they tend to look at it as, like, oh, well, I'm, do- I'm doing you a favor. I have to make them like me. Who cares about the product? You have to like me. Mm, right. In the black areas, if there's white competition, I have to, you know, play, play a card. Like, hey, come on, man. Support a brother. You know, here we are doing for the family. What's good, kid? Hey, yo, I'm right, I'm right here from this environment. You know what I'm saying? I will come from here. And if you look and if you go to the hood, we are the ones who run out of food first. White areas can hold on to their grocery store food and they have better food.
1: Hey, Gabby, you were speaking earlier about um, uh, the need for uh, BIPOC farmers to uh, form networks of support. Um, as I've been um, speaking with farmers uh, all summer here in Connecticut, you know, the, you hear the same stories over and over again. And you do hear the need uh, among farmers and a desire for that network of support um, to to share stories like the one we just heard. Um, I, I wonder if you can maybe just sort of react to what you were hearing there. Um, was there anything that kind of stood out in that clip to you?
2: <laughs> Definitely, yes. Yeah, <laughs> the, yes, I, I agree one hundred percent with uh, brother blessing. Um, I have that experience too. Uh, going selling in farmers market within uh, what majority white communities, it, yeah, that is the that is the um <laughs> the reaction of the customers and it happened to me I that um, I support I provide services as well to farmers and I was visiting one flower farmer that um that that I support through NIFOC and um he is indigenous um uh, from Mexico and he has been growing flowers in this country probably for 32 years, um, there is no one more expert than him. And <laughs> this lady comes and starts to ask me all this question about the flowers and I, repeat, I say at least three times, he knows he speaks English, he is the expert, he is the farmer. And this lady was asking me again and again, the questions despite the fact that at least two or three times, I told her, he is a farmer, he grows these flowers, he is the expert. So it is the assumption within our communities, the larger communities, that who is a farmer, as you say, um, we need to debunk this idea that a farmer, it is a white guy uh, with, a green tractor and a plate shirt. We come in many races, ethnicities, shapes, genders, and yeah, we're here to grow your food, um, your cultural appropriate food as well. And that is why me in particular, uh, within my farm, I focus on cultural relevant products for my community. And I sell where uh, Caribbean communities um, go and live because i don't need to explain somebody from the caribbean what is the taste the flavor or the use of the crops that i grow like a hill well
1: you know and that's another point i wanted to bring up gabby is this idea of uh what are what is being sold at farmers markets right and if a farmer's market is in an area um, is it providing food that is culturally relevant to the people that live in that area? Um, and the answer seems to be uh, sometimes no, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes they're growing kale for a community that doesn't really want to use kale on their cooking. They want to use something else. Um, can you talk a bit about that idea, you know, making sure that farmers markets in the area where they are are actually selling the food for that community?
2: Um, for me, food is culture, right? Food is not a trend. And that is a problem with kale. Um, kale and collard greens, for example, are the same plant species, but you cannot sell or you will not have the same profit selling collard greens in the Northeast um, versus kale. So farmers have to make the decision how to make money and they grow kale, um, among others examples. So when we see the food trends affect how the public uh, our communities see what is healthy and what is not we we as a farmers usually face very difficult decisions on what we grow does this speaks to the reality of uh, my values and what is the profit that I want to do and I want to say that Johan she speaks uh, about finance and profit um, the Connecticut farmer the net net cash farm income is 1414 14, thousand dollars per year imagine what is sustain your family with fourteen thousand dollars that is below poverty level in the United States so um yes if you are a farmer and you want to grow food that speaks to your culture you really need to do a lot of research and where where is your community at what are the ways that they um pers- uh, they procure the their food and what is the price point that they can pay definitely uh, we see a lot of I will save you boutique type of farms that sell a um, mixture of greens for eight dollars and people pay for it uh, but that might not be what is cultural relevant for the community where they are. And very often, the these farmers market are not in uh, food upper height uh, neighborhoods when we see the highest rate of food insecurity within communities of color.
1: From Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. I'm Patrick Scahill filling in for Lucy potential. We're speaking with Dr. Gabriela Pereira. She is co-director of the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust and co-owner of Yara Farm. We're going to go to a break here and come back with a little more conversation after this. You can join the conversation or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Patrick Scahill, filling in for Lucy Nall Today we're talking about farming and the challenges faced by one particular group of farmers, those who identify as BIPOC, that's black, indigenous, and people of color. We recently spoke with Elizabeth Guerra and Hector Geraldo, co-owners of Cimarron Farmstead in Danbury, Connecticut. The couple says people of color have been farming for generations as slaves and as immigrants.
0: My family is from the northwest province of Esmeraldas in Ecuador. My mom lived on the farm when she was in Ecuador. And so my mom always made sure that we, she always had like a little planter in front of her house.
1: I come from the Dominican Republic. I'm an immigrant. Even within my own community, I don't fit because you know, I have an accent. Sometimes I bust out with my Spanish and they get confused. Like, what's this guy with dreadlocks talking Spanish? Overall, 95% of all farmers are white. For me, it's finding that balance of where we fit
0: in this farming world, especially in Connecticut. So I think the statistics are really interesting, too, just because it's what people define as a farmer. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the people who are actually on farms doing the work, they're not defined as farmers. And so I think the change in like culture, the change in how we define what farmers are and who does the actual work, would change those statistics completely.
1: Joining us is Dr. Gabriela Pereira. She is with the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust and co-owner of Yara Farm. You can join the conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Gabby, we heard some statistics about farmers um, in that clip that we just listened to. Um, Obviously, the statistics are one thing. uh, Reality is another. I I guess, you know, what do those statistics about who actually is doing the farming, uh, what do those statistics miss?
2: Um, Humanity behind um, numbers, Uh, we humans tend to really see numbers when they are too big or too little, we cannot really grasp a good idea of um, what that numbers means. When we see that uh, in the United States, eight out of 10 hands that touch your food, um our immigrants are spanish-speaking immigrants um it's very different than when we say 98 percent of the farmers are white right so when we say um that the people that care about your food the people that are in the fields um doing and the work on their heat waves on their uh, rain under everything. It is an immigrant that with um, you. It's very different. Usually, we have this preconceived idea that a farmer, it is a business owner, and we see and we say labor as this uh, word that keep us from the reality that we are talking about people. Um, Farmer, to me, is every single person that are out there in the fields, Um, even if it is urban, small, uh, urban farms, are there cultivating your food, uh, taking care of the animals that you eat, um, that preserve the use of the seeds that comes from your culture that is a farmer it is not who owns a business or who is an employee and that is a in my opinion how we as a society can be more in in relationship with the food that we eat because um if you know your farmer if you know who grows your farmer i i bet you will have a better connection to the meals that you prepare at home with your family, or you eat elsewhere.
1: One thing I know you've said uh, in the past, uh, Gabby, uh, is that land is is not a not a commodity to be had. It really is. It's time. It's an investment of time. It's an investment of energy. It's an investment of uh, a farmer's love and and, and passion. Um, I'm sure this is a theme that comes up over and over again when you speak with farmers that are in your network. That you know this is something they're really pouring their heart and soul into.
2: Definitely, it's it is not that uh, land is not uh, it is not an investment, and uh, land is our kin, right? Um, we land is not property; we cannot own uh, a kin. Um, if you think about your child, um, when they are born, there is a paper that uh, said that you you and they are are related to each other. That is how I see deeds, property deeds. Um, Just because you have a deed that doesn't make you an owner, that makes you a steward. And you have the responsibility to take care of that land for you, for the land, and for many generations to come. Um, And that is one of the breaking points on how, we relate to agriculture to here. It is through a, a labor of love, pretty much, um, preserve your culture identity through the food that you eat, it is to preserve the land for future generations and for the conservations of water, um, soil, and all these wonderful things that feed us. So we nurture them and they feed us in return.
1: Can you describe a bit for me the community of farmers on on your land and the network that you're working with?
2: Definitely, we are 530 farmers of color in the network um, through the Northeast. And we came together in 2017 in winters through potlucks. And just to to fight isolation, it's very scary being in the middle of the countryside and not have people that looks like you, that it's like you. Um, so in 2017, in the winter, a group of 25 farmers came together and they decide that the best way to be in relationship among each other and with the land is through the creation of a structure uh, as a land trust, and from 2018, the um, 25 or uh, 21 first members grew uh, uh, what we have today, uh, 530. And we created already the land trust that we have four different programs that they complement to each other. We have community conservation. We have a repos- repository, I'm sorry relationship and reciprocity, we have uh, policy and climate justice, and we have the land network program. All these programs are meant to be in right relationship with the land through ancestral, relational and transactional practice that allows community of color to do their best what they want. Um, uh, with the land.
1: So, as a co-owner of Yara Farm, I I guess maybe speak a bit about. Um, I guess what do you see as the future for the for the farmland there? Um, what are you hoping uh, happens there?
2: I really hope that in fifty years that land exists. (laughs) That the practice that uh, I implement today, like planting trees, keeping certain areas of the wetland with native species um, allows the land to to be there in 50 years. With the increase of climate streams, we see more floodings, we see more erratic uh, patterns of precipitation and um, the land has less resilience on um, moving the water in a way that um, allows us humans to be there so it's it's with great effort we want to in 50 years see the children of the children's in our life today to be there to be able to walk that land and to be able to grow the crops that they want yeah that is there is a dream that my wife and I have and be able uh, anyone within the community to to have access to, especially those that are the original stewards of this land, the Lenape people, to have a space in the land for have ceremonies, to have uh, access to their ancestral practices there. So we take a lot of responsibility, not only growing crops, so it speaks to our communities today. But to preserve that land that in 15 years from now, um, the children of the children that we have here in, in our life today are able to do all the things that I mentioned before.
1: Uh, we only have a, a, about a minute left here, Gabby, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you just as a farmer, how are things going on the land uh, this year?
2: Terrible. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> we have probably three rains within a month and a half. And yeah that definitely affect the the production that that we have but this is giving me the opportunity to look for those seeds that will be more resistant um with uh, drier conditions so um we don't have challenge we have opportunities to learn every year
1: that is, uh, I think, a, a great, great way to to look at it. I, as a as an outsider looking into the farming world, I'm just in awe of um, how resilient and how optimistic so many farmers are. And I'm sure that's something you see when you speak with other members of your network.
2: Yes, yes. I mean, uh, if you don't if you don't do this from love and from resilience, probably you should not be doing it. And that is important of having community to really check um, that. Mm. Uh, for those days that are not good, (laughs) that everything is very overwhelming, that everything seems like, oh, my God, I don't know if I will make it for next year, for next week. Yes, check with your community. Your community is there for you.
1: That was Dr. Gabriela Pereira with the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. She's also co-owner of Yara Farm. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation.
1: I'm Patrick Scahill filling in for Lucy Alpothantial. Today's show was produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening today.